Good evening. It's on. It is good to be together this evening. If you're a guest, we're glad that you're here. It encourages us that you're here. We have a lot to be thankful for. If you want to be making your way in your scriptures to 2 Samuel, we'll be looking at the 11th chapter. We won't have slides tonight. We'll look primarily at four different passages. Hope that you'll open your Bible and study together. 2 Samuel, the 11th chapter. And the Bible that's in your pew there, uh, if you uh, use it, it'll be 282 will be the page number. Uh, we're thankful for so many good things that God gives us the opportunity to be involved in and those that are willing to work with it and be involved and lead it and etc. We're thankful for the ladies day that took place this past Saturday, a great success. We're thankful for Rachel Pate and her uh, speaking at that and so many other ladies that took part in leading that and working with that. We're thankful for all that our ladies do on a continual basis. Uh, we're also mindful and thankful that we had the opportunity to host a dinner with Phil Wagner to support Lamb and his mission work in Latin America. And that was this past Tuesday. There were probably about five, at least five congregations represented. And uh, it's just a wonderful report to hear about the work and to hear what's taking place. And, and over $17,000 was given. Uh, about 10000 that was given to support Phil and about 7000 to support the work of Latin America Mission. And uh, we're thankful that God has been generous to us and that we can be generous. And uh, we want to continue to be generous in God's work and do everything that we can do to help the kingdom spread. Uh, with that in mind, be prayerful and be thinking of ways that you can be involved and that we can do all that we can do to make We Are the Sermon Day a success. It will be next Sunday. Uh, classes are organizing that, and so you can work with your class or with another class and their sign-up sheets at the Information Center. And then also, the very next week, which will be the first Sunday in November, will be our prayer day. And we're going to organize prayer day this year a little bit differently. Uh, and a lot of that will be organized also through the Bible classes. So you'll be hearing announcements about that also next Sunday. And we look forward uh, to just seeing how God wants to use us over the next few weeks. Let's make sure that everything that we do uh, we do it in such a way that we stand for truth, we speak truth, and we give the glory to God. For two weeks now, we've been looking at revival. Today, we looked at that, perhaps an unusual way to word what the psalmist worded in Psalm the 85th chapter, whenever he spoke of righteousness and peace kissing each other. A beautiful blending together, if you will, that the righteousness of God is a high standard and we all would fall short unless he imputed his righteousness upon us. And what we need is we need the peace of God. And Jesus Christ came to that, this earth and he brought us the righteousness of God and the peace of God. And without that, there would be no hope. If I were to ask you who's the greatest character of the Old Testament and we made list high on the list to probably everyone here would be King David. When we think of David, we think of him as a shepherd. We think of him as a poet. We think of him as a king. We think of him as a giant slayer. We even think of him as in the ancestry of Jesus Christ himself. But it's just as true that he also was a liar, a betrayer, an adulterer, a lustful man, a murderer. Isn't it interesting that the Bible does not hide the flaws and the sins of the great men and women in the scriptures? Instead, God makes no apology when he describes that man and says that he's a man after God's own heart. 
Now, not because of those sins, he's a man after God's own heart, but because of the way he lived his life and dealt with his times of sin. Listen, it is true, Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, that our sins do separate us from God. But it is not our sins that continually keep us separated from God. It's our stubborn will that keeps us continually separated from God. And the beautiful thing about David is that we see that he would not keep that stubborn will to stay in opposition to God. Tonight, what I'd like to do is I'd like for us to look at a story I'd like for us to look at a response. When the story contains sin, there ought to be a response. Then I'd like for us to hear just a quick glimpse of how Jesus would describe the Father and then extend the invitation. What's the story? The story is in 2 Samuel, the 11th chapter, in verse 1, it begins with the words, It happened in the spring of the year at the time when the kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with them and all of Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. Then it happened one evening. That evening he goes up to the rooftop and he sees Bathsheba bathing and he inquires about who she is and finds out that it's one of his mighty men's wife. You see, they're all out for battle. Probably the way his area was laid out was probably his mighty men lived closest to the house that he would live in because they would have been a type of a secret service for him. He probably had a pretty good idea that this was going to be one of his mighty men's wives. It probably was no surprise that that's who it was. Instead of seeing and looking away and saying, I need to purify my heart, he looks and inquires, finds out who she is, sins for, and then finds out a little bit later that they have conceived a child. And then as we studied last week, instead of uncovering this sin and confessing it to God and begging God's forgiveness, he tries to cover it up. Let's invite Uriah to come home. He'll go into his wife and it'll appear that now it's his child. Uriah is too honorable to do that because the other soldiers don't have that privilege. And so he tries to get him drunk the next day. Maybe he'll go home then. And he wouldn't go home. So then, shows you how loyal and honorable Uriah is. David writes a note, folds it up, hands it to Uriah for him to give to Joab, the one that would be the leader of the army. He knows that he's not going to read it. He's a reliable man. He's a loyal man. And that letter, well, I want you to see these words again. Look again, if you will, in 14. In the morning, it happened. Do you notice we've read that phrase now three times? It happened. That David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. Time goes by. I suppose David was feeling pretty good about himself. Everything's right now, right? You know, if you do wrong and you just let time go by, that just kind of covers up sin, doesn't it? Only in the eyes of man. Time does not remove the guilt of sin. It's the blood of Jesus Christ that removes the guilt of sin. And under the old covenant, it was that broken and contrite heart that we'll look in just a few moments. God sins in 12th chapter and verse 1, Nathan to David. Now, why is he sending him? He's sending him because it happened. Isn't it interesting 
how hindsight is 2020. David would have been able to look back and say, you know, now I can see where all of that started. That started when I didn't go where I should have been. Perhaps as a king, I should have been out with my men in battle. Maybe I shouldn't have been on the rooftop looking down upon other houses. It happened. It happened when I wrote that letter. I chose to murder a man instead of confessing my sin. It happened. Is there a time that you can look back in your life and you can see when it happened? You know where you found yourself drifting out into sin and you got far enough out that one day there was that wake-up call where you say, wow, I didn't realize I'd come this far. It happened back there when I started making those wrong and sinful decisions. We all need wake-up calls. We all need Nathan. We all need somebody like Nathan. We need the word of the Lord to come to us. And you remember Nathan's story. It was about the man who, on one side of the road, he has a lot of herds and, and a stranger passes through. And instead of taking one of his sheep and feeding the stranger, he sends his servant across the road to a man who had one female lamb that he had raised in his house, drinking from his cup, sleeping on his chest, and the scripture says he loved that lamb like it was his daughter. And this wealthy man sends the servant over to slay the pet lamb to feed to his guest, and David is infuriated. He declares that the man should be punished, he should be repaid fourfold. And you remember Nathan's words. David... You are the man. We need those times in our life when we confront our sin because that puts us in a situation where perhaps we can be wise like David and admit what we have done wrong and turn away from it instead of trying to cover it up over and over and over. Turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 51. Psalm 51, it'll be page 507 in the Bible that's in your pew. 507, the Bible in your pew. This is a passage that I guess almost every scholar you could read agrees that this is probably the prayer that David prayed after talking to Nathan. After being confronted with his sin and just really coming to grips with who have I become? What has happened to me since those days that I said it happened? It happened when I did this and it happened when I wrote that letter. There's a lot of beautiful things we could study in these 19 verses, but I'd like to bring out three things for you as we think about a response. Whenever we find ourselves being the person that is involved in sin, what does the response need to be? We need God's mercy. Look at verse one, three ways that he says it in one verse. Have mercy upon me. We studied about that this morning. We need the mercy of God when we deserve something horrible. We need the loving kindness. See that? Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness. That's almost the same Hebrew as the mercy. According to the multitude of your tender mercies. David knows what he needs. David needs the mercy of God. And what does he want? Blot out my transgressions. Verse two, wash me thoroughly from my iniquities and cleanse me from my sins. How does David describe sin now at this point? Apparently before Nathan convicted him, 
He thought sin wasn't that bad. Now things have changed. Now his eyes are open. He's not believing the lies of Satan anymore. And he realizes transgression is to go beyond. He says, I have gone beyond. I've transgressed. I need someone to blot out my sin so that I can come back within the will of God. I need cleansing. I need to be washed. Why does anyone ever need cleansing unless they're filthy? Why do they need to be washed unless they become dirty? How do you see sin? You see, David wasn't willing to make any movement back to God until David accepted the fact sin is dirty. Sin corrupts my soul. I need to be washed. I need to be cleansed. But sometimes we drift so slowly into sin, we're comfortable with it. We get dirty in sin and we convince ourselves we're not dirty. As a matter of fact, if we're not careful, we'll get into the middle of the dirty sin and we'll start disobeying 1 John 2 and 15. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. And we'll say, why not? I love it a lot. I can't imagine my life without these things. Really, it's not that bad. People that tell you it's bad, they're just being judgmental. People that tell you it's bad, they just haven't tried it. Can you imagine all the excuses David could have made as king? Could you imagine the decrees that he could have tried to change as king? Could you imagine all the people that he would have had in his control to give them orders to make him look good? Instead, what does he do? David talks about his past actions as if they were filthy. As if they were something that needed to be cleaned up. We're going to come right back to here, but I invite you to turn over with me for just a quick reading to 2 Peter, the second chapter. We could see the teaching of sin corrupting our soul many places, but 2 Peter, the second chapter in verse 20, 2 Peter, the second chapter in verse 20, for if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world. Pollution sounds pretty dirty, doesn't it? Like we'd need cleansing. After we've escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior. See, we need a Savior to escape the pollution of Jesus Christ. They are again entangled. It'll trip you up in them and overcome. It'll get the best of your soul. The latter end is worse with them than the beginning, for it would have been better for them not to have known the way of the righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. Isn't this interesting, the wording? But it has happened. It has happened so many times when that's in the scriptures. It's not a good transition. It has happened to them according to the true proverb. A dog returns to his own vomit and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. What does Peter describe here? Peter describes a pollution that whenever we are in Christ, it's easy to trip up. It's easy for us to find ourselves entangled again in pollution. Now enough said there, but let's pause and let's emphasize what we probably would rather not emphasize. Peter, how do you want us to see it? No, Peter, you're not going to say that, surely. Peter says, I think it needs to be made. 
Peter says, you need to understand, sin is like vomit. Peter, that's, that's pretty bold. He says, no, I'm not going to stop there. Sin is like a dog vomiting and going back and eating it again. It's like the sow being washed clean and going back and wallowing in the mire. Brothers and sisters, I beg you tonight to evaluate your life. And if there is sin that you have tried to convince yourself that it is no big deal, I ask you for just a moment, for a spiritual sake, what if God looks at what you're looking at and you're saying it's no big deal and he says it's spiritual vomit? Who are you going to believe? Are you going to believe Satan who's telling you the lie that this vomit is good? Or are you going to believe the Lord that's saying, I have so much more in store for you. I have the joy of salvation in store for you. And you're going to settle for this. In Psalm 51, the way David made his way back was realizing first, he's going to have to have the mercy of God. But two, he was going to have to be honest with what sin really was and really is. Sin is something that we need to be separated from and cleansed of in our life. But then we have to take responsibility for it. Look in Psalm 51 and 3. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. That's powerful. That's ownership. That's saying I'm not going to blame Bathsheba. I'm not going to blame other people that I might could blame. I'm not going to pick out things about my past. I'm not going to pick out things about just who I am and start making excuses. He says, I'm going to come to God and I'm going to beg for his mercy. I'm going to call sin what it is and I'm going to take responsibility for it. And God, first and foremost, I've sinned against you. Sin harms my relationship with God. When I'm ready to take responsibility to call and to see sin for what it is and recognize my only hope is the mercy of God, then it brings me to this point, and let's skip down now to 16 and 17. For you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and a contrite heart. Now, please don't misunderstand in 16, when David says that God doesn't desire sacrifice or delight in burnt offering, he's not talking about just in any situation. Under this covenant, God definitely wanted burnt offerings and he definitely wanted sacrifice. What David is talking about in his, his personal situation it wasn't due a time for David to make a burnt offering or a sacrifice. And think about it. What he's saying is, I am not going to you, God, and I'm not going to try other schemes and other ways to make my life right with you when it's not what you've asked. Think about it for a moment. He was a king. He was a wealthy man. Think about it, if he wanted to pull the old merit system on God. Oh, God, you're right. I tell you what, I, I've sinned. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to offer 
500 oxen on a burnt offering for you. And I'm going to give you a burnt offering like nobody has ever seen. And that'll make things right. Listen, we don't bargain with God. We don't approach God with our schemes. You heard there what God wants. A broken and a contrite heart. It's my arrogance and my self-will that gets me into the middle of sin. And if I'm going to make it back to God to receive His forgiveness... It's going to be my humility and my brokenness that brings me back to God. Until I'm ready to call sin, sin, and take responsibility of it, and here it is, the brokenness, and be so sorry that I've sinned against God. I want you to pretend for a moment You know nothing about religion. Nothing. And you come in and you visit a few services and let's just say that you came here for the first time just a few weeks ago. And over the last few weeks you've watched, I'm not sure the number, five, six, seven people respond in the last couple of weeks. Now I want you to imagine, you don't know anything about what's going on and you watch them respond and so you watch them and since you don't know what's going on, you reason within yourself and you say, That must not be a good thing. And you say that out loud to somebody and they say, why do you say that? That's one of the most beautiful things we could ever do. And you say, well, no. Everybody that I've seen come forward looks so broken. They seem so sad. That can't be a good thing, is it? And God would say, yes. When sin is separating us from God, that is the greatest response that we can have. I'm broken. Everything's not okay. You know, we like to tell ourselves everything's okay. I'm okay. I'm okay. Listen, if sin is separating me from God, it's not okay. I need to be broken. I need to be broken to the point that all I know to do is say, God, I'm coming to you. And I don't have anything to bring except a flawed spiritual person that's dead at the moment. I want to be alive. My only hope is that your mercy and your truth and your righteousness and your peace can come to me in the form of a Savior, Jesus Christ. And then we can experience what he said in verse 12. By the grace of God, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Restoration. Revival. Make me alive again. Have you ever... I know a lot of you study the Bible a lot. Have you ever, in studying Psalm 51, noticed what's missing? I think it says a lot about the character, the spiritual character of David. You know that by this time, David's already been told the sword is never going to leave your family. 
You notice he doesn't try to bargain with God about that. He doesn't say, God, by the way, while you're forgiving me, can you go ahead and take away the earthly consequences also? God's never promised to take away the earthly consequences. Our sin brings a lot of earthly scars. But notice, David still believes that in the midst of his pain, there can be the joy of salvation, even though he knows that his family is never going to be spared from the sword as long as he lives. But that's how important it is for David to have the joy of salvation, to know that his soul is right with God, and to know that when he dies, he's going to live for an eternity with God. And in the big scheme of things, that's all that matters is our salvation. As we move this towards a close, I'd ask for you to turn to Luke 15. We've seen a sin, we've seen a response, but before we close this little short two-week series, I want you to put your eyes in Luke 15. It's page 924 in the Bible that's in your pew. What is the father's response? The prodigal son. In verse 13, he gets the father's inheritance and it doesn't take him long to journey to a far country. Isn't it interesting? It's a far country, but it didn't take him long to get there. And he's got all of these possessions of his father's, these riches. But then notice how quickly it dissipated in 14. But when he had spent all, wait a minute, he was going out there because I've been missing out. When I've been living back with my father, I've been missing out. Out here is everything that I want. Out here is fulfillment. Wait a minute, when I spent all, how can it be getting away from me if out here is fulfilling? I thought out here is when everything was draining I wanted to leave the Father so that I could be fulfilled. I had a lot. I left the Father, and now I don't have anything. Can it get worse? Please get this, brethren. When I'm living without God, you better believe it can always get worse. And so now he's looking, probably thinking to himself, it couldn't get any worse. I left with a lot. My Father's inheritance. And now I have nothing. I've spent it all, and notice the next line. It got worse. There arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Echo that phrase in your mind and join it up with Psalm 23 and 1. He began to be in want. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. When we live with the Father, we are fulfilled. We have a fountain that never stops flowing. It is eternal. He satisfies our soul. Satan lies to us and says, come out here. I can give you real fulfillment. We step out here with Satan and we are drained. We have no fulfillment. And you know what we're hopefully going to long for? I want to go back to the Father. And so he makes his way back to the Father. And I'd like for you to notice in verse 20. Notice the father, he arose and he came to his father and when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and he ran and he fell on him and he kissed him. And the Greek would be kissed him much. 
And the son describes how he's not worthy to be a son. In verse 22, the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe. Think about the dirty clothes he would have had on and put it on him and put a ring on his hand. That would have probably been a family ring showing he's part of the family. And sandals on his feet. Imagine how dirty. And bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. What have we been studying? Revival. Alive, revive, alive. He is alive again. He was lost and he is found. They began to be merry. Who's the father? He's the one looking down the road a great way off. And he's the one looking for individuals that are humble. They're coming with a broken heart saying, God, I'm not worthy. And he says, that's what I can work with. I don't need to rehearse all your sins. I just need to know that you have a broken heart because of your sin and you're coming back to be fulfilled. God's always longed to have relationship. He hugs, he kisses. He brings out the ways to clean up his son, the cleansing, and he makes the provisions. He gives the identity and he declares the one that was dead is now alive. The invitation, Hebrews 2. Hebrews, the second chapter. Hebrews, the second chapter. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard. Now, I want you to think about that phrase, the more earnest heed. More earnest is, is superabundant. It's, it's super exceedingly. Like, in other words, he didn't just say give earnest heed. He gives more earnest heed. Heed is to be careful. Take it to mind. Notice it. He says, I want you to really, really take this to mind. Okay, God, you've got our attention. What is it you want us to take to mind? He says, lest we drift away. Notice that word drift. For if the word spoken through angels provided proof steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how Shall we escape if we neglect, notice that word, so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. The Hebrew writer says, pay extra special attention to the words when those words are telling us about our God and about our Savior. Why? Because it's easy to drift. You ever been out in the ocean? And you just kind of hang out and maybe you, you're on some kind of little raft or something or maybe you're just playing frisbee out in the ocean or throwing a football. And have you ever looked up and realized that you're not in front of the same hotel that you started out? And you know, you start doing that, that looking around, it's kind of that sinking feeling of, wait a minute, I've been at the same place. Think about that. That's what you tell yourself. I haven't moved. You know, and then if you're not real smart, you say, did all those hotels move? No. Then you start saying to yourself, I had to move, but when did I move? Isn't it amazing how you can drift if you don't have your eyes focused on a standard? You take your eyes off Jesus for a little while and you drift. It's not that, that you pick it. I'm an atheist. I'm a Satan worshiper. 
I hate God. It's not that at all. It's just we lose our focus and we drift. And then he says, ask a question. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? If something that great, nobody would miss it. According to Jesus, a lot of people are going to miss it. Why would they miss it? He says, well, some of them are going to miss it simply because they neglected it. They didn't mean to. As a matter of fact, if you would have talked with them, they said, sure, I'm, I'm going to get my life right with God one day. I, I'm going to wait till I get married. I'm going to wait till we have kids. I'm going to wait till my kids are a little bit older. I, I'm going to wait until I'm, I'm further down my career. Right now, it's just hard to put God first. I'm going to wait till we retire. Well, you know, right now that we're retired, we're, we're busier than when we were working. I'm going to wait later on. Listen, you don't neglect something that's that important and be wise. How shall you escape if you neglect so great a salvation? What if we don't want to neglect it? What if tonight we look back and say, I know when it happened. And tonight I need the mercy of God. I'm calling sin what it is. And I need cleansing. I'm responsible for it. And it breaks my heart. And I'm coming back to God because I want the joy of salvation. And I know whom I'm coming to. I'm coming to a father that's got his arms out. He's looking a great way down the road. And he wants to call us his own. He wants to give us his ring, his robe, and his shoes. Friends, tonight, why don't you let it be tonight that it happened for good? Why don't you let it be tonight, the night that you say, that was the night that I was revived. I became alive again spiritually. If there's anything that we can do to help you either become a Christian or come back to Christ, we'd love to do that. And as we sing this song, if Satan whispers in one ear, I want to beg you not to listen to him. Don't neglect so great a salvation.